Well, last week we uh, wrapped up the book of James. And uh, for those of you who are here, it was a slam-bam finish, I think. But uh, it was just great to be able to go through that material again. Um, the way we ended the, uh, the series was to realize that James himself took a journey. Jesus took a journey. And then he showed James how to do it. And James took a journey, and he's trying to show his people how to do it. And as we read this book, if we read it through that same lens, then what really is happening is that we're all being invited to take a journey as well. And the journey started with acceptance, and then it came right back around to acceptance. And in truth, the journey never really ends. It just keeps circling. But if we do it right, every time we come back to where we started, from acceptance to acceptance, we're a little bit higher off the ground. We have a little bit better perspective. We understand a little bit more about ourselves, the way life works, about the nature of things, the nature of this ultimate reality that we call God, we call Father, this uh, first cause, this glue that holds everything together. And as we keep making these journeys, we're making kind of a spiral path which is taking us to a place where we can more and more become completely free. And that's really the object What is the point of a spiritual journey if we're not becoming free? Completely free to be able to love. Because love is scary when you're afraid, when you think that you have to hold on to things, when you think that giving things away is a zero-sum game, and if you give more away, then there's less for you. But when you finally find out the nature of things is not that way, that love doesn't work that way, that love is not a zero-sum game, that the more you give, the more that comes back. Things change, but you have to experience that. And so James' methodology, the way he went about it, was to say, okay, let's start by accepting life on life's terms. Let's start by accepting the difficulties that come our way, because they always do. As long as we're drawing breath, there's difficulties and challenges coming our way. But if we can start to accept those and see those actually as friends, as opportunities for growth, then something changes. Something changes in us. We approach things differently if we see them as an opportunity rather than a threat. And so when we can start to see this challenge, this thing, this trauma, this loss that's hurting me right now, first of all, it's it's part of the fabric of life. So I accept it on that level. But more than that, I see that by the endurance through there, I'm moving toward a perfect result. By enduring through, and faith is the endurance. Faith is the motion through. Faith is the action as if something were true, even with evidence to the contrary, even with the doubts that are in our heads. If we act as if, then we get to a place of wisdom. Wisdom defined, though, as the application of the things that we say we believe in real time, in relationship. And we see the result. We call this place the effect because we want to see the effect of God's love, the effect of our choices, the effect of our movement through this journey. That's the maturity. That's the perfect result. It brings patience, and patience brings our adhesion to this journey. To be submitted, James says, is to finally come back to the acceptance of the reality of our relationship to life and God and everything else. To finally accept the fact of our own vulnerability. That vulnerability is the human condition. 
Not to see vulnerability anymore as a weakness, but to see it as something to be thankful for. Because in our, and I love this phrase, desperate dependence, when we finally come to accept that, that is the beginning of all of God's provision to us. When we finally get all of that stuff out of the way, everything we think we are, everything that we think we can use to control, manipulate, change circumstances to our advantage, when all that gets cleared out, and we finally accepted our own powerlessness, our own vulnerability, our own dependence, even for our next breath, now everything can begin. What did Paul say? In my weakness, I am strong. Because when I finally get down to that place, when I finally let go, everything can start to take place. We can finally start to experience God as God is and not through the filter of our imagined power and control and our fear. We realize we're not starting from nothing, we're starting from everything. That God has never withheld anything from us from the moment we took our first breath, from the moment that the foundations of the earth were laid. There was never a moment that God withheld anything. That's the good news. That's what Jesus is talking about. All that starts to become real in our lives when we finally get all that other stuff cleared out. Acceptance to acceptance. Now, this is James, but he's echoing the same thing that Jesus is saying. The Beatitudes are the picture of that person who has cleared all that stuff out. Who is poor in spirit, which means having that attitude of poverty, even if rich. Who is willing to mourn, is willing to throw themselves into relationships to such a degree that they can get hurt. This is it. This is the picture to accept our vulnerability, to get to this place. And this paradoxical way of proceeding is what James and Jesus are both talking about. And you know, Paul is talking about it too. If you really take a look. There's three, for me, there's three really key passages and books in the New Testament. From Jesus, we have the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. From James, we have James. And from Paul, we have Romans. And if you really look at those three passages, those three books, you see that Jesus is coming to us from a conceptual point of view. He's trying to break down old ways of thinking and get us to see the possibility of another there out there that we maybe haven't even conceived of. So therefore, we can't take the first steps to it because we don't know what we don't know, right? And so here's Jesus trying to turn individual heart lights on. He's working on a conceptual basis. He's trying to get individual people in a micro setting to understand that they don't have to go through any middleman in order to get direct connection with their Father in Heaven. He's doing radical stuff here. And his language is just as radical because it needs to be. It needs to shake people out, shake us out of normal ways of thinking and kind of move us over into a whole new thread, a whole new tangent. Then you have James who takes what Jesus is doing and he's talking on a practical level. And he's talking now in a macro setting because he's not dealing with individuals. He's dealing with the Jerusalem church, all the followers that have gathered around Jesus to this time. And so now Jesus' concepts have to be applied to the group. There have to be rules. There have to be ways of going through this. And you see a slight change, but you see exactly the same message going through. And then Paul in Romans is speaking from a theological base, from an intellectual base, trying to get ideas across to a very different audience, to a Western audience instead of an Eastern audience. But he's speaking the same thing. He's trying to get those across. And so that paradoxical way of looking at this, that is the only thing that's going to break us loose from ingrained attitudes and habits, 
is that paradox. So, so what is Jesus saying? If you want to find your life, you have to lose it. If you want to be first, you have to be last. If you want to be the leader, then you have to be the servant, right? He says, if you all get to work at different times during the day, you're all going to get paid the same. I mean, all of these things that are trying to shock us into realizing there's a completely different way of approaching things than we had assumed. And then here comes James. And two weeks ago, he was saying, if you want to be exalted, you've got to be humbled. Humble yourself first and then the Lord will exalt you. So there he is, inverting that, giving us that paradoxical way of looking at things. And what does Paul say? He says we're saved by grace. It's a gift of God. It's nothing that you can attain. If you could attain it, then you could boast about it. But it's not yours to attain. It's just a free gift. There's that same kind of paradox, that same kind of inversion of the way that we normally go about things because we're normally trying to acquire something and bring it in to make ourselves whole. But the truth of the matter that all these three men are trying to get across to us is that everything is already within. It's already here. All we have to do is let go of all the stuff that's blocking the view. (laughs) So that's what they're trying to do is to get that across to us. Two weeks ago, I read a passage from Chuang Tzu, and I want to reread it here because it's so clearly illustrates what this is all about. And Chuang Tzu was a Chinese philosopher from the 3rd, 4th century BCE. But listen to what he writes here in, in the context of what I just told you about what Jesus, James, and Paul are trying to do. He writes, Can you embrace the one and not lose it? Can you foretell good things and bad without the tortoise shell or the straws? Can you rest where there is rest? Do you know when to stop? Can you mind your own business without cares, without desiring reports of how others are progressing? Don't you love that one? How often do you obsess about what other people are doing and want to know what they're doing? Can you just let that go? Can you let your thoughts just go? Can you stand on your own feet? Can you duck? Can you be like an infant that cries all day without getting a sore throat or clenches his fist all day without getting a sore hand or gazes all day without eye strain? You want the first elements? The infant has them. Echoes of Jesus, who always held up a child as the emblem of kingdom, and said, unless you can become like one of these, you can't enter. Not that you're being shelved out for any lack of uh, performance on your part, but because you just won't be aware unless you finally got down to that beginner's mind again, finally got down to that place the powerlessness of understanding your own vulnerability, accepting that. You want the first elements? The infant has them. Free from care, unaware of self. He acts without reflection, stays where he is put, does not know why, does not figure things out, just goes along with them, is part of the current. These are the first elements. If you persist in trying to attain what is never attained, it is God's gift just like Paul is saying, right? If you persist in making effort to obtain what effort cannot get, if you persist in reasoning about things that cannot be understood, you will be destroyed by the very thing you seek. To know when to stop, to know when you can get no further by your own action, this is the right beginning. That's clear. Maybe clearer than what we see in our scriptures because we're so familiar with them and we are looking at them, have been looking at them through Western lenses, through Western eyes. But to pull back and understand, this is what 
Jesus is talking about, what James is talking about. This idea of action without action or effortless action, to be a part of the current, to be a part of the flow, to stop striving and trying to acquire, to let go of the anxiety and the stress of trying to get all these things that you need to get. But now this creates another tension, doesn't it? And this message today was inspired kind of by the end of James, but also two questions that I was asked on successive days this week. And one of them was on our Wednesday night book study when we were reading this material. And we got to this part and one of the women stopped and said, okay, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm supposed to be part of the current. I'm supposed to just flow, right? But what happens when I do have to stand on my principles? What happens when I do have to stand up for my beliefs? Someone uh, pointed out, you know, any dead fish can swim downstream. (laughs) You know, what happens when you do have to go upstream? What's that all about? What does that look like? Does that violate these principles? I mean, what's really going on here? And then the following day in one of our group sessions, one of our... um, one of our clients here, who is going to be leaving next week, and so there's a real sense of focus. You know, nothing focuses the mind like a deadline. So he knows he's leaving. He knows he has to go back out into the world, back into his old life, and he's, he's concerned. He's scared. He doesn't know what's going to happen. And he said, how do we take these kind of principles and actually move them into the world, into our jobs, into all the things that we need to do? And not only that, what about current events and what about where the world is going? how bad it's getting. How do we reconcile those two things? How do we have these nice-sounding principles but move them into a macro setting? Those are two really good questions. And to answer them, what I want to first do is kind of back up a little bit and look at something else, and then we'll kind of circle around again. I want to read a a little bit of a... uh, I guess it was kind of a performance poem that came out a few years ago. And when this hit the airwaves, it hit as a, it wasn't airwaves, it was the internet. When it hit the internet as a performance poem, all right, it went viral. And um, it had over 20 million views within a very short amount of time. It had 3 million hits or views in one day, if you can imagine that, driven mostly by young people. But then CBS and CNN picked up on it, and Wikipedia had a page for it. It just went crazy for a period of time there because it was really striking a nerve. So listen to what he's writing here. Listen to what he's saying here. It's titled, Why I Hate Religion But Love Jesus. Okay, that gives you something right there. What if I told you Jesus came to abolish religion? What if I told you voting Republican wasn't really his mission? What if I told you Republican doesn't automatically mean Christian? And just because you call some people blind doesn't automatically give you vision. I mean, if religion is so great, why has it started so many wars? Why does it build huge churches but fails to feed the poor? Tell single moms God doesn't love them if they've ever had a divorce. But in the Old Testament, God actually calls religious people whores. Religion might preach grace, but another thing they practice, but another thing they practice, tend to ridicule God's people. They did it to John the Baptist. They can't fix their problems, so they just mask it, not realizing religion's like a spraying perfume on a casket. See, the problem with religion is it never gets to the core. It's just behavior modification, like a long list of chores. Like, let's dress up on the outside and make look nice and neat. But it's funny that what they used to do to mummies while the corpse rots underneath. Now, I ain't judging. 
I'll let you decide on that one. I'm just saying quit putting on a fake look. Because there's a problem that people only know you're a Christian by your Facebook. I mean, in every other aspect of life, you know that logic's unworthy. It's like saying you play for the Lakers just because you bought a jersey. Now back to the point. One thing is vital to mention. How Jesus and religion are on opposite spectrum. See, one's the work of God, but one's a man-made invention. See, one is the cure, but the other is the infection. See, because religion says do and Jesus says done. Religion says slave and Jesus says son. Religion puts you in bondage while Jesus sets you free. Religion makes you blind, but Jesus makes you see. And that's why religion and Jesus are two different clans. So for religion, no, I hate it. In fact, I literally resent it. Because when Jesus said it is, it is finished, I believe he meant it. Pretty strong. A lot of good points there. A lot of clever twists of words. And the people, uh, young people were really driving because they're looking for authenticity. They're looking for something that's real. And they look around at church and they look around at our institutions and they realize that like the emperor, they have no clothes. There's a problem here. There's a hypocrisy here. There is no integrity here in many instances. Now there's a theme forming in these three, the two questions in this that I want to point out to you. And it's this kind of assumption, it's this attitude that life is about or requires us to choose sides. That it's about choosing sides. That things in life are white and black. You know, Republican and Democrat or Catholic and Protestant. You know, like the questions... You know, can you flow with the current, but then how do you stand firm? I have to choose one or the other. If I want to move out in the world, how do I live these micro principles that really bring us into a notion of love? I have to choose sides, one or the other. Jesus and religion, choose sides. But what happens if you choose Jesus, but completely abandon religion? What will happen then? And more importantly, did Jesus choose sides? I mean, what this young man is saying is that, yes, Jesus did. Jesus was trying to do something completely outside of religion. Is that really what Jesus was doing? That's the question. Because to try to imagine Jesus abolishing religion misses the entire point of his Jewishness. Truthfully, Jesus never set foot outside of Judaism. Never. What he was trying to do was to purify his religion within it from the inside out, not to try to leave it or abolish it. Jesus was a good and extremely observant Jew. He wasn't leaving his religion. I remember talking to a Franciscan priest who was Chinese-American, and he theologically was out there, and he was spinning my head around 25 years ago when I first met him because I was still really in the box with Christianity. And I remember at one point he, uh, he said that the devil was just a metaphor for the evil or the weakness that we find inside ourselves. And so I was loaded for bear with my Bible going to meet him in his office after that, and, and he just stuck his hand in my face and said, hey, wait a minute, all I can tell you is what I'm convinced of. You, you go become convinced of what you're convinced of. And of course, I thought it was a cop-out at the time. But now I realize it's all we can tell to one another. And I remember having another conversation with him where I said, why do you stay a priest? I mean, you were so far outside of Catholicism as I was raised in it, as I understand it. Why do you even remain? 
And he just laughed and he said, I've been a priest for 50 years. I'm going to die a priest. It was the same understanding. He wasn't leaving his Catholicism. He wasn't leaving his religion. He was trying to be a force for change within it. He was going against the current. But he was laughing when he told me that story. There was something about that juxtaposition that really struck me. He wasn't offended by my question. He wasn't upset. He laughed. No, 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 no. I'm going to die a priest. You know, but what I want to do is something here, something that's important. And I'll tell you what, the last Mass that I attended with, with, with Father Tang uh, up at Sarah was one of the most beautiful experiences because he took the time with everything he did. And those of you who were raised Catholic, you know what I'm talking about, or even Lutheran or, or Episcopalian, within the liturgy, every little thing he did, everything he moved on the altar, he explained why he was doing it. He gave us the deep symbolism behind it. And suddenly all that religious practice became alive. And it really brought us right into the presence of God as it was originally intended to do but over the years had lost the ability to see the God behind the symbol. But he brought the two back together again, brought spirituality and religion back together again. You know, we often say that Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship. Have you heard that one before? Yeah? But the thing that we have to understand that to a Jew, and the Jews are where we started from. Jesus, as a Jew, is where we started from. To a Jew, relationship has no meaning outside of community. And the community is defined by the religion to the Jews. What do relationship mean if you weren't relating within your community? Not just one-on-one, but to the group. They were a communal society. The basic group was the community, not the individual as it is here in the West. We are so geared to individual freedom these days in the West that we miss the context of Jesus' message. We miss the context of James and Paul and what they're trying to get across to us because we're looking at it from the wrong direction. Relationship is only meaningful biblically as a corporate expression that's lived out in religious practice, not outside it. And those religious structures are absolutely necessary Jesus says, until heaven and earth pass away. That's the only way that this works. We humans need these things. Take a look at the, um, your bulletins at Matthew 5. Because what you're going to find out, Jesus is more religious than any of us. <laughs> Ultra observant. At Matthew 5, verse 17, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets, I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. And what we don't understand is law and the prophets is code to the Jews for the entire body of their thought, the entire body of their practice. The Jews took all their books of, of their Bible, what we consider our Old Testament, and grouped them into three sets. The first was the Torah, which was the law. The next was the Nevi'im, which was the prophets. And the third was the Ketuvim, which means the writings. So that was Job and the poetry, uh, you know, the Song of Songs and all those writings. The Nevi'im is the prophets, all the writings of both the major and minor prophets, and then the Torah is the first five books. And that was their Bible. They actually had an acronym for it. It was the T, it was the N, and the K, or the Tav, and the Nun, and the Kaf, 
of, in their alphabet. And they called it Tanakh. That was their, their, their Bible. And so when you say the Law and the Prophets, that's a shorthand for everything that a Jew believes, everything that a Jew practices, because those two sections of the book contain all of that. And Jesus says none of that is going to pass away. None of it. Everything is going to stand fast until heaven and earth pass away. And so this statement matches Jesus' avid observance Remember, he made all of the pilgrimages to Jerusalem that he was supposed to make three times each year, even when it cost him his life at Passover, as we approach Holy Week, as we approach Easter. He always did exactly what he's supposed to do. If he hadn't done that, the Pharisees would never have recognized him enough to even have asked him the first question. They would have avoided him completely if they realized he didn't stand completely inside the law. Jesus did that, but he did it with complete freedom at the same time. And so, do not think I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I didn't come to abolish, but to fulfill. How are we going to fulfill? How does that work? Well, take a look at the next verse, 18. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now to a Jew who's just trying to get by daily, this is crazy making. How could they be better at the law than the Pharisees were who were the lawyers of the law? What is Jesus trying to say here? And the clue comes in that first line. Until heaven and earth pass away, the word there in Aramaic is abar. And abar means literally to cross a boundary, to cross a threshold. So until earth and heaven cross boundaries, cross the thresholds, in other words, merge into each other as one. The structures of the law, the structures of religion, the structures of community are needed to continue to guide us toward that unity, that connection, Because law means instruction or guidance. Torah means that. Not law as we think of law. So that guidance, that structure that continues to funnel us toward experiencing heaven and earth merging, becoming one, is what it's all about. Read the paraphrase here, Matthew 5.18. Until light and form, individuality and community, heaven and earth, finally merge again into unity, not the smallest part of every guidance that relieves our weakness will pass away until it has fulfilled its purpose and is no longer needed. This happens first within us as individuals. When we get to the place where we have experienced this oneness, where we have experienced the freedom of realizing it's not about following rules. It's about letting flow out of us what we have finally uncovered within us. And then, as more heart lights turn on, eventually the community is going to reflect that attitude as well. And when that happens, what need for there is of rules? If everybody has the law now written on their hearts, when everybody has the same values as the one who wrote the law in the first place, then who's obeying anymore? We're just living our lives in complete freedom, Like Augustine said, love God and do as you please, right? What we please is now right in the center of God's will and desire and deepest purpose. 
That's when the law will no longer be required. But until then, we need these structures. And I think we're not quite there yet. Stone not yet smooth, right? So this is what's going on here. How is this unity, how is this merging going to be accomplished? You know, I would like to say that it can come kind of by osmosis. I would like to say there was just a prayer you could pray, and all of a sudden it was going to be downloaded to you. But the way this happens is with a dedicated and structured process. We have to practice day in and day out. Every day we have to come back to living life with that endurance that James talks about, right? With the faith that moves through even in the face of difficulties and challenges and lack of evidence. To move through that in a dedicated way is where we finally get to the place where we have experienced and are becoming more and more. So this is where everything is leading. This is where we're trying to get. And so we humans, if you think about it, any program you're running, those of you who are in 12-step programs, those of you who are following religious programs, or just trying to follow your own heart as you move forward, there are five things that you're going to need to be able to move through this and get where you really want to go. And the first one is community. We are wired to connect. We are wired for community. We all need community. We don't do this completely on our own. We have to be connected. And not just connected, but we also need to have accountability within the community. That means that we're just not showing up and checking boxes that we showed up to a communal event, but that we're actually allowing people enough into our lives to really see us and for us to see them, that they will see when we're starting to go off the rails, left and right. They'll see when those emotional relapses start occurring that are going to take us into bad territory, and they can help us get right again. They can see the signs before we see them in ourselves but we have to have that connection within community deep enough to allow accountability. And the only way that occurs is through structure, through actually showing up day after day to something that allows us to be able to get into each other's lives that way. And that requires discipline. There has to be discipline that keeps the structure going that allows us to have the accountability and the community. And finally, we have to have service. There has to be some way for us to give back. There has to be some way for us to complete the circuit. Without those five things, without community, accountability, structure, discipline, and service, we are not going to get where we need to go. There's always a debate about how much program people who are recovering need, how much religion people who are trying to you know, attain some sort of spiritual formation need. You need those things. Find those things. You might find them in your bowling league. You might find them in your book club. But find them. They have to be there. And if they're not there, then you are not going to be moving toward this goal of freedom that we're talking about. I'm sorry, but it doesn't work any other way. This is the way... We humans are wired. This is the human condition. And this is what religion provides when it's done right, when it's done well. For Jesus, private relationship only exists in the context of public religion. That may sound weird to you. But then the flip side of that is public religion is only fulfilled in private relationship. See, instead of choosing sides, instead of either or, it's actually one thing, functioning as one, which is exactly what God's name means. Multiple things functioning as one. 
We don't choose sides. We see that the two work together hand in glove. That within religion is where we find our relationship. And so now we're back to that paradoxical language again, aren't we? Of James and Jesus and Paul. Not either or, but both and. So now let's return to that first question. How do we bring the principles that we're talking about into the world, into the groups that we have to maintain, into the macro? How does that work? And we asked that question in the session, and and one of the, the people just popped off right off the top. He said, well, the first thing you do in a group is you obey the rules of the group. Brilliant. (laughs) So simple. If you're going to be a part of the group, obey the rules of the group. If you don't like the rules of the group, leave the group. That's okay. That's your choice. But if you're there, how in the world are you going to build community with accountability if you don't first obey the rules of the group? so that you can be accepted and be a functioning member who is growing cohesion and community within the group. You follow the rules of the group. Of course we need to do that. But beyond that, to realize that the way we really experience groups is one person at a time. How many people are you talking to at a time? In your group, in your church, in your 12-step in whatever group that you are part of, in your school, at your workplace, as you throw in to these communal activities, you're still experiencing people one at a time. And that's where you move beyond just following rules, beyond just law, and move into this place of real relationship, real connection. Now Jesus' words start to take shape again. You know, when you're hit on one cheek, you give them the other cheek. When you're asked to go one mile, you go with them a second mile. When you're asked for your shirt, you give your tunic as well. It's more than just what the balancing of scales would require because within the group is the individual relationships and we need to see the two as a whole. That's really what's going on. The community, the group, the macro is still experienced as micro. It's functioning as one and the same. What we often do is get lost in the macro as a diversion for individual relationships within the group. Mother Teresa said it perfectly. She said it's much easier to love someone halfway around the world than it is to love someone in your own home. To take a look at everybody as that macro cause out there and you send your dollars away and do that, but when it comes right into your home, it's so difficult, isn't it? Sometimes we get lost in the politics. It's an election year. You know, we're going to get all revved up between Republicans and Democrats and how bad Trump is and this and that and the other thing and conspiracy theories. But if we live in that abstract realm and never come in for a landing, we're using it just like a drug to medicate, to anesthetize, to numb the things that we're not dealing with now. doesn't mean we don't pay attention to current, current events and be good voters, but there has to be balance. We need to be here within the group now. Now what if, I said, if you don't like the rules of the group, leave the group? What if you can't leave the group? What if it's a family situation where the the rules of the group or the dysfunction of the group is so toxic? What if it's your country which starts to put abusive practices on the population? What do you do then? Do you just obey the rules? What is your responsibility as an individual? And this is where we come to the second question. How do we submit? How do we flow with the current? 
but also stand up for our beliefs, stand up for what is right, protect those who need to be protected, stand by the principles that we hold dear. And here again, it seems like we have to choose sides, doesn't it? Between submission, between flowing like the dead fish down the stream, or between really standing up for what it is that we believe. How do we do that? How do we do those things at the same time? You know, the Jews would not allow their people to create any graven images. You know what that means? They couldn't make a picture of their God. They couldn't carve a statue of their God. Because they knew that the moment that you did that, the moment you took this unseen God, this great I Am, and reduced him to an image, that image would become the focal point, And the God behind the image would be lost. It's called idolatry. We do it all the time, though, don't we? We look at the Bible that way sometimes. The Bible becomes the end product rather than the conduit through which we can experience the God who inspired the book in the first place. We do it with our cultural practices. They become more important than the people that they were meant to serve. Just as the Sabbath became more important to the Pharisees than the fact that it was supposed to bring rest and refreshment and the awareness of God's presence every week to the people. We lose our way with this. And so the beliefs and the practices that we put in place that are meant to be means to take us to God can become an end in themselves if we're not careful. But even if we allow them to take us where we need to go, once we have experienced this God, once we have experienced the nature, who he really is, the love that is absolute, the fact that he has never withheld anything, then do we need the rules anymore? Do we need the beliefs anymore? It's the same thing we were just talking about. How does this work? As these move us, once God has experienced, we know the direction that the Spirit and his wind is actually blowing. We become sensitive, we become aware of that. And as we move with his direction, it feels like we're flowing, even if that direction is upstream even if that direction is against the mores of our culture, even if it's against the people around us and they are coming in opposition, if we are still flowing with God, it's going to feel like flow. We were talking about this in the group and he said, you know, you know, it's easy to go downstream, but what if you're going upstream? And I said, well, you've got to know which way the wind is blowing. And everybody said, what are you talking about? But the wind might blow with the current, the wind might blow against the current or any other direction. If we're sensitive to that and we're moving with that, even as the obstacles come against us, it still won't feel like that anxiety-ridden, you know, just terror of trying to acquire and grab and fight. We can be a happy warrior, in other words. When we are questioned, as I questioned Father Tang, we can just laugh and say, yes, I'm going to die a priest. It's okay. I'm not offended. This is what I am going to do because I have experienced God's goodness. I hear his voice and I can sense his direction and I can flow with that. And so the two things become one. We're not choosing sides. We can move against the current and still be in flow at the same time. I hope this is in some way becoming clear because it's so difficult to express Again, I have to resort to the paradoxical language because there's no other way to say it. 
But if we keep persisting and thinking that we have to choose sides, that it's one or the other, then we'll always be half a person, wondering where the other half is, as if it doesn't exist in us and we have to go out and acquire it. And as soon as we get on that hamster wheel, we can't get off until you just jump off, which is why Jesus was always trying to break that kind of thinking and bring us to a new direction that has integrity, where the two things become one. Life lived well is the embrace of paradox. It's letting go of the need to constantly resolve. Letting go of the need for just one thing to be true at a time, and we have this neat progression from assumption to conclusion in Western logic. We have to let go of these things and realize that the way life is really experienced is not like that. Things are confusing. Things seem to be contradictory. But we can move through them with that sense of contentment. We just allow them to be. We know what we believe. We know what we are convinced of. And we move along that conviction. We move along with that flow. We take our hits where we need to. We come up against the difficulties difficulties we need to. But we keep on moving. We're not trying to resolve We're just moving through life with the kind of acceptance that the child has. The child just accepts things at face value. Can we do that? Can we stay where we are put and not know why? (laughs) Can we do these things? Because otherwise life is always going to be so fearful that we will not enjoy it. To get to the point where we accept our desperate dependence gives us the power of spirit to be able to endure to overcome, to experience this micro-relationship in the macro, to experience the being in the doing. We're still doing, but there's that balance of just being, that sense of effortless action, following the flow out of a sense of abundance and not just to acquire. We have to realize that living with Jesus, living with Jesus' way, is not about choosing sides. It's about seeing both sides as one thing and living with that as the center of our focus. Let's pray. Father, it's a difficult thing to do. It runs against the grain so strongly. But if we can just get the first glimpse that it's true it makes everything possible I want to pray this morning for that first glimpse I want to pray for just a parting of the curtains just for a second for us to be able to see the way things really are the way you showed us that they are so that we can take the next steps to find the structure and the discipline and the community to be able to go where we can go as human beings and find that connection and that kingdom that you promised us. Thank you for loving us the way you do, Lord. Thank you for giving us every tool, every guide, every person in our lives who is helping us along the way. Help us to see them for what they are as extensions of yourself, as your hands and feet in our lives, helping us and guiding us along the way. We are so blessed by you every day, every breath. Thank you for loving us. Help us to remember we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, let's all stand.